prior to the text that we're reading right now in verse 12, we read a few weeks ago about the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is where Christ comes into Jerusalem and he's riding a colt. And this is in fulfillment to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine. And so we walked through some of the details of that and how Jesus is the king that we need, even if he wasn't always the king that they wanted. He certainly is the king that we need. And we reflected on how crowds were gathering around Jesus as he's making his way into Jerusalem, including the disciples. And they were all sort of hoping that there still would be an uprising, which would end the uh, domination of Rome at that time and inaugurate a new era where the Jewish people would rule and reign alongside their coming Messiah, who they now are saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're declaring openly that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're thinking that he's going to take this place of power. And we reflected on that a, a number of times that, that Jewish people, devout Jews at that time, did not understand the suffering servant who would come for the atonement of our sins and the conquering king who would come at a later time. They didn't understand that there was a first and a second coming. And so they're trying to grapple with what they're seeing in this Messiah because they're believing that it's Jesus, but they're just not sure about what he's doing because this is not what they think the Messiah is supposed to do. And so when he gets into Jerusalem, everyone's hoping and thinking that he's going to make a kingly proclamation. And guess what? He just doesn't do what they were hoping for or thinking that they would. And here's what the text says where we left off in verse 11. It says that Jesus went into the temple, he looked around, and then he went back to Bethany. It's rather unimpressive. I mean, it's just kind of a funny thing when you think about it, but that verse is very important for what we're going to look at today. This is a familiar passage, but I'm praying that there's some things that we can bring out today that maybe we've never thought about that help as we connect the whole gospel of Mark together. So I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and here's what uh, the Bible says. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. You see where I got the sermon title there? Did you got that? It's just real creative. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, that's right, he spoke to the tree. A couple of you will resonate with this, you're tree talkers, you know. He spoke to the tree and he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den." And the chief priests and scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him. And the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw that fig tree and it was withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, which you cursed has withered or it has died. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. At first glance, this passage, to me at least, is kind of odd for a number of reasons. I mean, here's what we read essentially in this text. Jesus curses the fig tree. 
He drives out all the merchants from the temple. He rebukes the temple leaders. And then he sits down calmly and he begins to teach all the people that were gathered there. And it says that they were astonished at his teaching. But here's something underneath all of this that I think we have to really look hard at today. This passage reveals something that I think has grieved the heart of God for thousands of years. And that is this, that God's people have a profound capacity to take what he gives and misinterpret, misuse it, and misapply it. This kind of self-righteousness and deception is often responsible for constructing religious systems and structures that do the exact opposite of what God intends. And when this happens, this is what it produces. Temples for transaction rather than places of worship that bring healing and transformation. It produces professional ministers who misuse power and authority rather than lovingly leading people to our shepherd. It produces religious systems that conceal God from, from everyone or the common folk rather than reveal him to the hungry that actually need him. It produces false perspectives of who God is, which ultimately send people away from him rather than draw them to him. And here's the sad reality as we reflect on this passage, that sometimes if we're honest, we will settle for a whole lot less than what God is actually giving. We will settle for leaves instead of fruit. I remember a dream as I was uh, studying this passage, I was thinking about a revelation that I had uh, several years ago. Now, sometimes God gives me dreams. I mean, I'm not like Joseph or Daniel. I'm not getting anything about the end times. And wouldn't you be interested if I was? <laughs> it just seems like it sells. It's a commodity right now for some reason. Everybody always wants to know when the Lord's coming back. And I'm not sure if it's because they're excited to see the one in whom they have believed or if they just want to get their life right at the 11th hour. But I'm not trying to judge. Anyways, I had this dream and it's super funny to me, but uh, it was vivid and clear. In the dream, I was a fruit inspector and I was walking up and down all these vineyards. And I don't know anything about vineyards other than I know they're out there somewhere. And I drive by them when I'm on the road to California or Eastern Washington. And I look and I go, oh, I think that's a, a vineyard. Awesome. That's about it. Okay. Anyways, I know nothing else. But in the dream, I'm walking up and down all these rows of vineyards. And I know I'm an inspector. I have a clipboard and I'm taking notes and I act like I know what I'm doing. And don't you love how when you're in a dream, you know how to do things that you know you really don't know how to do, but you just lean into it, you know, because you're like, hey, I'm an inspector, whatever, you know, hey. I'm looking at the, tr at the vines and I'm noticing 75, 80% of the vines are diseased. I'm looking at the fruit, I'm pulling up the fruit and the fruit's bad, it's rotten. And I'm taking notes because I have to give them to my supervisor. I get on one of the trucks and I'm inspecting the crates that are full of all these grapes and I'm looking at the grapes and I realize they're full of rotten fruit. And I'm taking all of these notes and I'm thinking, why are these people trying to sell something to people to consume and to eat that isn't edible? We should be throwing this away, not giving it to people for food. And the next thing I know, I look off to my left as I'm inspecting the crates and there's this angry mob coming with pitchforks like you would see in a movie. And I know for a fact, they are coming straight for me. So I just do what you would do. I bail, man. I run for my life. Amen. That's what I did in the dream. And I woke up and something I realized very clearly that maybe you get right off as I'm telling the story is that 
People did not want them to expect the fruit of their tree. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming to the tree of Judaism, of Israel, and he's inspecting the fruit from all that he has given to them. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them the law. He gave them the temple. He gave them the priesthood. And he is coming to the, to the tree to see if there is any fruit. Jesus is an inspector. And that's what we see in this passage today. And here's what I want to do as I frame up this text. I want us to approach this passage of scripture with humility. Because the reality is we can't just look at them. We have to look at us. All of God's people, as far as I can tell from scripture, have this profound capacity to walk away from the Lord, even when they know who he is, even when they know what he has given and what he has done. We all have that in us. And so we read this text with a sober mind and a reverent heart saying, Lord, help us to follow you and walk with you in a way that is worthy of your name and all that you have done. Amen. Three things I want to share with you today from the text. The first is this. Jesus expects fruit on his tree. Verse 12. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, Make, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples were listening. That's an important part. The disciples we're listening. In Israel, when you go there, we will in a few years, we had to cancel a couple trips, but we'll get that together. And we want to go every year, every other year. I've been there. It's an amazing thing to actually get to go and be where Jesus walked. And the Bible is true, by the way. And you realize that when you go to Israel, you're like, yeah, this is really a place. This isn't like some fiction tale or whatever. It's amazing. How many of you have gone to Israel? And I don't know if you remember this when you went, but you see fig trees everywhere. Sometimes we read a passage like this and we think there was a fig field that Jesus was walking in. He was not. Jesus was walking on the road and it seems to me from the text that he looked over on the side of the road and he saw a common fig tree. And so when he saw the fig tree, it says this in the text. It says it wasn't the season for figs. Well, we know that's true. This was actually in spring. It's the Passover feast. The season for figs would be mid-August to mid-October. Fig trees thrive in the heat. I know because I have one in my backyard and we had a lot of heat this summer and this thing grew like you wouldn't imagine. In fact, I'm going to show the members a picture uh, tonight. So if you're not a member, you don't get, it, get the picture, I guess. I just thought about what I said. I apologize. If you're not a member, I'll still send it to you. Whatever. I have a point to it. All right. Can we edit that, Josiah? So it's early spring, and it says in the text that it's not the time uh, or the season for figs. So I read this and I go, man, it, it seems kind of unfair for Jesus to go to the fig tree and even have any expectation that there's going to be fruit on it. But here's the thing you have to know about fig trees. His expectation was not unfair. It was right. And I want to show you something. I brought all kinds of stuff. You didn't think this was just when I got hungry, did you? No, you didn't. During the spring, there, there, there is not, the harvest may be from August to October, but during the spring, if you see a leaf 
It's indicative that there will be some fruit. And the fruit is not going to be the full fig fruit. It's gonna be like these little knobs. They're edible. Jesus went to the tree to get a little snack because he was hungry. That's what he did. And he expected to have these on there and his expectation was right. And the reason that you would know that the tree would have some of this fruit, enough fruit to be edible, enough fruit for a snack is when you see the foliage. This is the sign that something else is actually on the tree. And so he goes to the tree, but all he finds is these. This is a fig leaf. It's withering now, so it's not as great of an illustration, but this is a fig leaf. This came from my tree uh, yesterday, actually. And so he says, when he only finds leaves, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. And it withered and died. He cursed it. This was a pronouncement of judgment. And it was literally tied to what he was about to do. He is pronouncing judgment. And I want to be clear on first century Judaism because of what it is producing. Not the law, not the sacrificial system, not what he gave, but the way that they received it and stewarded what he gave. He's pronouncing judgment on that religious structure and system because it was misappropriating what he gave. In fact, it was doing the exact opposite of what Jesus intended. And here's what we're saying. Outwardly, there's this structure Outwardly, there's this adherence to the festival. There's all of these things going on during the Passover feast. Scholars tell us that they probably sacrificed 250,000 animals. So you can imagine like this is all going on and, and it looks like something is happening. It looked, the buzz and the hum and all the people are coming up to Jerusalem and they're singing the Psalms and they're celebrating. And isn't this such a wonderful thing? But this is a prophetic picture from Jesus that he expected to find fruit, but he only found leaves. On the outside, it looks like stuff's going on, but underneath it, there is no fruit that people can actually eat from. And that's what the story of the fig tree is all about. He expected fruit from his covenant people and he expects fruit from his church. Jesus has the right to expect fruit from our lives. Friends, listen to me carefully. It's not just for them, but it is for us as well. Why? He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his message. He's given us his mission. And it is clear. It is written down for us. Make no mistake. Every person in this room and every person across the world that is, that is listening to the gospel today or has an opportunity to read from this book, this is written down for us that we are without excuse. He gave it to us for a reason. And he expects the find fruit on his tree. And one of the wonderful things about this is not just about obligation. It's that we get to read his word, serve him faithfully, love him with all of our heart. And so this is a sober warning and it should be as we read it today. The application point would be as Jesus inspects our lives, what should he expect to see? And maybe we could ask, what is he not seeing? How can we repent and turn our hearts to the Lord in a fresh way today so that the fruit that he desires from our life as his followers is certainly blooming and blossoming in our lives that other people can, get, can receive from him and not just from us. The second part of this, which is a really important piece, he goes from the fig tree right into the temple. And my point is Jesus rebukes the fake 
and the fraudulent. Look at verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling. These are just the people buying and selling. And these aren't even the merchants yet. He starts to drive out all of the people that had come. And then he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. A robber's den, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, a robber's den is a refuge for thieves. It's a place where they feel safe. Can you imagine? Listen to what he's saying. This comes from the book of Jeremiah. I believe it's chapter seven. He's saying, you have made the temple a place that is safe for the fake and the fraudulent. I want you to understand what kind of a rebuke that was. This is a place for thieves. I mean, he's saying this out loud to all of these people that are listening. And the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to kill him for they were afraid and the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. I wanna remind you of something. And, and, and when we read this text, I cannot tell you how many times I have heard a well-meaning person suggest that Jesus had righteous anger and it was almost like he was really emotional and upset. And when he saw this, he just flew off and his righteous indignation was justified, even though it kind of feels like Jesus flew off at the handle. I mean, it's almost like people paint this picture, like Jesus couldn't just hold it together. But that couldn't be further from the truth. You know why? Because if you read the whole Bible, you realize that the day before was Palm Sunday, Jesus went into the temple and looked around. Do you remember that? Verse 11, he looked around and then what did he do? He went back to Bethany. He got up in the morning from Bethany. He goes to the fig tree and then he goes into the temple. Why am I saying this? Because Jesus had an entire night to think about his response to what he had already seen. Jesus didn't fly off at the handle. Friends, this is not a good verse for you and I to be like, righteous anger is justified. Most of the time, friends, what's coming out of us is not righteous at all. And stop using this verse and act like you and I are equal with Jesus, okay? Because we're not. I can't believe it when people use this. See, righteous anger is justified. Yes, that, there's a sense in which that is true. But don't use this verse like, number one, we're equal with Jesus. And number two, like he couldn't just hold it together. This was a calculated response from Jesus. This was not his anger unleashed. This was not some compulsion that he was offering. He was cleaning up his father's house. He said, this is my father's house. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Was it aggressive? Yes. Was it serious? Yes. How would you feel if you, if you, if you came home to your house after two or three weeks of vacation and there was 150 people partying up in every single room and they were drinking and smoking and kicking doors open and kicking holes in walls. How would you feel if you came home to your house and this is what was going on? I'll tell you, I, mean, I may not know how you would feel, but I know exactly what you would do. You would kick them out. <laughs> That's what you would do. That's what Jesus was doing. This is his father's house. This isn't the Sadducees' house. This isn't the house of the priests. They are stewarding what God gave and they are misstewarding what God gave. And so Jesus took it upon himself to do what they couldn't or wouldn't do. He's cleaning up his father's house. 
Devout Jews brought an offering for the temple, which was required to be a shekel. And this is important context. Most people didn't have a temple currency, which is why there were money changers. And so you would bring your form of currency and you would bring it to the money changers and they would exchange it for a temple shekel, but they would charge you 15 to 20%. Oh, they were making money, weren't they? And we also know that people were bringing a yearly sacrifice as for the atonement of the sins that they committed and for their family. They did this at minimum once a year, but some would come from far distances. So if they brought an animal without blemish, by the time they got there, there was probably a blemish because they had people that inspected every single animal before it was presented as a sacrifice. And they were so corrupt that even if there wasn't a blemish, they would make a blemish on the animal. So there was a place where you could sell your animal that you brought and buy a kosher animal. And you'll notice in the text that it says there were people who were selling doves. Doves, this was a This was a sacrifice for a poor person and it was a concession in the law. If you didn't have a lamb, you could could bring a dove. And so they were charging, they were giving an upcharge for the doves. My understanding is, I mean, the percentages were astronomical. It reminds me of what it's like to go to the movie theater. And you know that soda only costs 20 cents, but you're paying $8.50 for a soda that is larger than you and your family should be drinking, but you buy it, don't you? <laughs> you're trying to prove love for your family. You're like, look at this wonderful soda. And they, they try to get you in. They say, hey, you can get a refill. Like you need a refill of that soda, man. <laughs> if a big gulp is not enough, you can have a few big gulps. And it justifies this $20 payment. It's a hundred bucks to go to the movie. You're not going to find the Dixon family there. You're not. That's why we bought a little bit larger LED screen. And I've convinced my children that this is the movie theater of their day. (laughs) I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking? My kids will be here next service. I may not get as passionate. You understand? So the people brought their yearly sacrifice. This is what the transaction looked like. The markup was very real. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple. I've talked to you about how the Pharisees were in charge of the synagogue and the Sadducees were in charge of the temple. They were the priests and they were overseeing this entire enterprise, which means they were profiting off of it and everybody knew it. Now, Jerusalem had a marketplace of this kind and Jesus was not upset that there was a marketplace. He was upset because of where the marketplace was. Jesus was upset because they had taken the marketplace from outside the temple and they had put it into the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles was this huge area in the temple where foreigners, non-Jewish people could come. And this was the only place that they could come to understand who the one and true God was. So when Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles and he sees that the priests who were supposed to be the mediators between God and man, they were supposed to have this place and space for Gentiles to come and learn about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was a place where they were taking from them instead of giving to them. And we go back to the book of Genesis where God said to Abraham that you are to be a blessing to all the nations. And this was the opposite of what was happening. Yes, Jesus was angry because they were misstewarding everything. This had become a religious show. It was nothing but leaves. 
And it was a pronouncement that he was making that this is officially dead. May nobody ever eat fruit from any of this system again. He was coming to establish a better covenant. And here's the reality, and I, I want to move towards this today. There were people that were coming from all over, all over, different nations, different places, and they wanted to celebrate what they did not understand. There were Gentiles, foreigners, and they wanted to get in on this. Make no mistake, there is only one God of heaven and earth, and it is Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ. We have a Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this was a place where people could come on the outside and they could feel like they were inside, but this was filled with corruption through and through. It was rotten fruit. And Jesus was profoundly upset about it because he wanted the hungry to have a place. And all they could get was fake. All they could get was fake. They were coming for this. Now, I want to believe this is a Florida orange because in my mind, all big oranges come from Florida. I'm not right, but I just want to believe that in my head. Leave me alone. They came for something that was edible, something that would nourish them, something they were hungry for. They had a hunger and it was to be satisfied by, by God. But here's what they got. The first they got was fake fruit. Now this, I know from where you're sitting, this looks real. It does. Hobby Lobby says it's not. It looks real, doesn't it? Yeah, they, they come and this is what they end up with. They're coming to know God. They're coming to hear about the one and true God, but they're getting this. And so they walk away, not only having nothing to eat, but they walk away disillusioned because if they were to try to even eat this, it would harm them. They end up with something harmful. They end up with disillusionment. I came to eat. I was hungry, but this is what I get when I come here. I do all of this stuff. I jump through all of your hoops to get this. This is what you're giving to me. It's fake fruit, you know? It's fake through. I wanted to throw it at something. I won't do that. There's also, in my mind, now this follow me, there's also tainted fruit. You know, amen. Tainted fruit. You know something's wrong, people, when you can't even spell the, the word right, fruit. That's not how you spell fruit. In case you go to the store today and you want to buy some fruit, do not buy this. And I don't know what's in this, but let me just go ahead. Blue one. Yellow six. <laughs> is that what that means? I don't really know what this is. You know what this is? This is full of sugar. Now, some of you eat this. I'm not shame off you, but whatever, you know. But if you eat this, just know this ain't fruit. It can't even spell it right. It's not fruit. And so people are coming to the temple. Should I just keep this up here for the rest of my sermon? <laughs> you know, <laughs> fruit loops. <laughs> Pastor Ben made me loopy today. I feel something's wrong. People are coming to know God and what they're getting is something other than God. Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus, can I say it this way? Jesus doesn't like that. He doesn't want that. that that's a sober reality for us, for the lives that we live, the church that we are in the times that we're living, we want to give people something that will nourish them because God has given that to us. We don't even have to make it up. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to figure it out. We take what he has given and we give that away. It still works and it is the best thing on the planet and it is what people want, even if they're not begging us for it. Even if they don't say, you know, I want the gospel. I want to be saved. I need to be forgiven. If people don't say it, 
Friends, God still made us. God still created us. There's still a God-sized hole in every single person that though they try to satisfy it, though we maybe give them or people give them fake fruit and tainted fruit, there still is something in the human heart that wants what only God can give. And you can't get away from it. You cannot run too far out of God's reach. He's coming after every single person. Pastor Jared last week talked about church hurt. He talked about freedom from church hurt. And I so appreciate that conversation because I hardly meet a person that doesn't have what we call church hurt. And I wanna say this to you today. If you've been hurt by people that represented, or maybe we could say misrepresented God, I'm not on behalf of the church trying to apologize. I'm here to say, we all have been hurt by people that call themselves Christians. Let me... As far as I know, this is the only organization on the planet that in order to join it, you got to profess that you're a sinner. (laughs) If that's the case, we're probably going to hurt each other. I mean, to be a part of this, you don't come with your credentials. Like when you When you give your resume for a job, you talk about all your strengths. You try to hide your weaknesses. You know, they're back there somewhere. And if they ask you, you kind of give the lower level ones, you know, like, you know, I I just, I'm not even really aware of any like weaknesses, but I'm sure they're there. And I really want to be humble about that. You know how you are. Come on. I swear if I'm the employer, I'm just going to get a mirror. Just whatever. Because we're not good at self-awareness. It's, it's, I know definitively I know this. <laughs> so, so the reality is, is that we, we come to Christ because we need a savior, not because of how awesome we are. And here's the hard part is that our expectation is that the church is going to be like at this higher level. And here's the deal is like, we are growing from glory to glory by his grace. That's true, but we're all in process We're all in process. And as we're in process, we all have different temptations. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different tendencies. And so unfortunately, you're going to meet a person that has a tendency to do or say things in ways or in areas that you don't. And so you're going to meet that person that's going to be your nemesis, and it's going to happen at church, and we have this really high expectation, so it's not hard to get let down. In fact, if you're new to the church, I guarantee you'll be let down in some way today just by coming here. And that isn't to patronize us. I'm saying every Christian I know has been hurt by other Christians. And so every now and again, I see a pastor stand up and say, I'm really sorry on behalf of the church. I'm like, you don't represent it. You're not the fullness of the representation of the church. We need to relate to each other. This isn't an institution. This is a family of people. I don't agree with all of my family members. We don't always, you know, see eye to eye on everything. Sometimes things get said that aren't right. You do it and I do it. I think the hardest part of this is that sometimes when we get hurt, we don't realize that we too are sinning against other people. And so we separate ourselves and we stay in our wounding instead of relating to the sin that we all have and coming to Jesus, who's the only one that doesn't, which is the common denominator for us. We stay in our wounding and it cripples our life with him. And I would, I would say to you today, friend, don't do that for your sake. But here's the other part of this. We all have gotten hurt by what we call the church, this body of people, this family of people. But what we don't want to do is contribute 
towards the hurt or the perpetuation of that. And that's what we're talking about today. He talked about freedom from church hurt, and I'm talking about moving away from that perpetuation that continues to bring that hurt and that we don't wanna contribute to some kind of corrupt structure and system that only knows hurt. And the last point is this, Jesus clears the way for true seekers of God. Now, the passage that we're studying today is a parallel account to the book of Matthew 20, chapter 21. And it doesn't say this in Mark's gospel, but it says it right after Jesus cleared the temple, he sits down to teach, but look at what happens. Look at what happens. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Did you see that? The first thing that happens after Jesus clears the court of the Gentiles is the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. The people that were outside are now inside. The people that didn't have a place now all of a sudden have somewhere to go. The people that didn't get to see God as he really was, now the son of God is in his temple and they're coming to him. It's powerful. We often focus on how Jesus cleansed the temple of the merchants, but why? Because he was thinking about the hungry. It's why he was upset. It's why he cleared it. A real ministry is happening at this time and it infuriates the religious elite because they were hypocrites. A hypocrite is not someone who sins and is honest about where they are or who they are at the time. A hypocrite is someone who does and says one thing all the while they act as though that is not the case. That's a hypocrite. All hypocrites are sinners, but not all sinners are hypocrites. Hypocrisy hurts people really bad. I hear many people say that the church is a bunch of hypocrites. And here's the deal. Sometimes that's true. The fact is, we all have a sinful nature though that, that betrays us. We wanna do this, but we do that. It doesn't make you a hypocrite if you want to do right, but sometimes you fall short if you're honest about it. That does not make you a hypocrite. That makes you a person that's in need of the grace of Jesus. We just don't wanna be dishonest about it. That's what hurts people. To act as though we're something that we're not, to act as though we're on this level and others are on this level. That's not a hypocrisy that we want. Religious hypocrisy hurts the true seeker and the Lord calls us to show the way instead of hinder it. The way is Jesus. And we're not gonna perfectly represent him all the time, but we can be honest about when we're not doing that or when we have fallen short. And that's what we have to do. And most importantly, not just for honesty's sake, but there's a whole lot of people out there that wanna know this good God that we love. And we don't wanna be people that misrepresent him in such a way where we can't even be honest. What brings us to Jesus is that we need someone greater than ourselves to do what we can't. And that's the testimony of the church is that I was a sinner, but he is a savior. That I am broken, but he's a healer. That I couldn't do it, but there's someone that could that I wasn't strong enough, but there is someone that is stronger than it all. That's the testimony of the church. And what is it about us? Sometimes even today, not just them, but even today, sometimes we put ourselves into these lofty places and I don't think we mean to, but there's this tendency. And even if we've known them a long time, that we forget where we come from. There's a lot of other people that need what we've received. I, I've tell, told you many times, I, I'm not ashamed to continue to say that when I was 19 and I was in this 
terrible state and I came to the Lord. And I don't stand up here today and I, I'm such a better person. It's by the grace of God. The Bible says not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in him. There is no boasting in me. There is no boasting in you. There's no boasting in us. It's the grace of the living God. And there are people, thousands, millions of people that need what we have. And maybe you're here today and you say, I don't have it yet. Oh, but you can. And if somebody's misrepresented Christ to you or they have built a wall where you felt like it's hard to get to him rather than a bridge so you can walk across it to know him, meet him, walk with him, love him. Friend, I just wanna tell you, Jesus, that's not Jesus. And he's got another story for you that is yet to be fulfilled. God's the one that's still touching our hearts and we can't let a bad representation of what he's not like to offend us so much that we don't come to him to see what he is like. The beauty of God. There's nothing more beautiful in all this world. And maybe you don't use that word, but I was reading Psalm 27 and David says to behold the beauty of the Lord. Friend, we need a revelation of Jesus. It just knocks us over. I mean, just blows us away. And you might, man, not be, Ben, I know Jesus. I've known him for years. You still need a revelation of Jesus. He wants us to see him greater than we do, to know him more than we have. People are looking for a king like Jesus and our job is to make him known until the day that he returns. I accept this task. Do you accept this task? I accept this task. I love the fact that the church does a lot of things and, but I'll tell you this, if the church gives themselves to a lesser mission than evangelism and discipleship, we cease to be a church. We don't get to mess with this. This is what happened. There's all this stuff going on. People are coming from all over to Jerusalem. The, the Passover feast is being celebrated. People are bringing their sacrifices, their temple shekel. They're doing all the stuff. But here's what Jesus says. All it is, is leaves. There's nothing here for people to eat, nothing. And so we take this as a sober warning and we say, Jesus, make us a people that help others know who you are. Let's clear room so that they can come and be healed by him and hear his gospel and be changed and born again forever in Jesus' mighty name. We're called to help sinners find forgiveness through the Savior because that's what happened to us. We're called to welcome home the prodigals no matter how far they have gone. We are called to build bridges through the gospel and not walls of religion. We are called to testify that if God can do it for me, he can do it for everyone. It's the God that he is. How can we clear the path for true seekers to come? I don't have every answer for that, but I do know this, we can do it together. And that's what we'll do. May God help us to never build something that misrepresent him, but we would be that people that build something that looks more and more like him as people come to know Jesus. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Lord, we thank you. We're in your presence today. We're here for you. We gather around your word. We recognize there's a sober warning in this for us, but we also know that there's so many promises in your word that tell us you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You forgive us, you cleanse us. If we've not done a great job of representing you, if we're off and we need an adjustment, your promises is that you come and you do all that. And that whenever we turn to you, 
you're right there. You don't ever have to turn to us because you're always right here. And so we pray, Father, that you would cleanse and purify us in the days ahead so that we could be living witnesses of your grace. And I just pray over our church today that you would wash over us. We thank you that you do that. Friends, as we have our heads bowed, I just want to ask you, is there anybody here today that, that you came and you, you, you would say to me, Pastor Ben, I'd, I don't know that if I'm really walking in a relationship with Jesus. I hear what you're saying. The gospel is that Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for my sins. He died in my place. He rose from the dead. That proves that he's God's son. I, I get that. I, I, I've heard that. But I don't know if I have trusted my entire life to Jesus Christ. I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if I'm going to be with him for eternity. I just don't know if I have a relationship with him. If you're uncertain about that, he doesn't make it complicated. It's just simple. Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. And he says, I will give you everything that you need. He will give us eternal life. He will give us forgiveness. He will give us a brand new heart. So if you're here today and you need that, you need to have a new life in Christ. The first thing I just want you to do is acknowledge that by raising your hand. And this is what you're saying, Pastor Ben, I need that. I wanna give my life to Jesus today. If you're here, I want you to raise your hand. Raise it so that I see it. There's no, no, nothing to be ashamed of. If that's you, just raise your hand and, okay. Yep. I see you, yep. Anybody else? If you are raising your hand today after the service, we're gonna have pastors and prayer partners available and we wanna pray with you. Here's why. We want you to know what you're doing. We want you to know that it's real. We want you to know that you, you're making the best decision you can make. God created you. God loves you. God has more for you. And we wanna make sure you understand that and we pray together. And the second thing I wanna ask today, there were those that need salvation in Christ, but do you need to give your heart to Jesus in a fresh way? You say, Ben, I know him, but I'm not walking right. I'm not, living, I'm not living right. I need to give my heart to Jesus in a fresh way. I need surrender today. I'm not asking you if you have sin in your life. We all do. We all are walking with the Lord imperfectly, but I'm saying your life isn't right. If your life isn't right, like you're not walking with him, there's something that's pushing away from God and you're here today and I'm, I'm glad that you are, but do you need to rededicate your life to Jesus and make a profession of faith? I belong to you. If that's you today, I want you to raise your hand. Ben, I want to rededicate my life to Jesus. I want you to raise your hand high. Keep it up. Yeah, keep it up. We're not ashamed. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Is there anybody else you want to join these? 10, yes. I'm going to pray for you. You can put your hand down. Father, I thank you for every hand that's raised right now. As we're in your presence, you see the acknowledgement that we are surrendering our hearts and our minds to you fresh. We want to be a part of what you are doing. And so I pray over every courageous hand that was raised, and they're saying this to you. I believe, but help me to live fully and completely for you. I pray now today in the name of Jesus that you would baptize them with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And I pray with this fresh surrender today, Lord, that you would meet them in the place that only you can and you would do what only you can do. Father, we ask you for it. We pray for an immersion into your presence. We pray for a touch that only you can provide. We pray for the, to walk in the reality of Jesus, that as we walk out of this room today, there is something that has happened inside of us that only you could do. Do that now. Do that in this moment, we ask you. In Jesus' mighty name. Would you stand to your feet as I close? I wanna say thank you to those of you that were raising your hands today. It doesn't seem like much, does it, raising a hand? But we'd love to pray for you after the service. I'll tell you what it is though, every step towards God is a step. And we don't despise small things, every step. I've seen a hand raised, get healed. I've seen somebody raise a hand and get delivered. I've seen someone get set free because they were just raising. Something so small to us is indicative of our heart. That which is inside, I want to do this, but then your hand goes up and it's saying what's in here. Don't despise the small things, please. God sees it and he responds, this is our faith. This is our faith. As I was praying today, um, prophetically, I had this word for someone I was reminded of Joseph, the terrible story of Joseph and his brothers. And the first part of that is Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit. I don't know if you remember that. And in worship, I was singing to God, but I saw this picture of Joseph just being thrown into a pit. And I overwhelmingly felt like somebody was here today and you feel like your brothers, your sisters, your family, you feel like they threw you into a pit. Like they just threw you out. Like you just have been cast out of the family. Maybe you've been ostracized. Maybe you've been sidelined. Maybe you've been pushed to the side today. And you need to know that God is the one that helps us out of that. And he can get, he's the God of the turnaround. He can turn our hearts around. That when people don't forgive us, God forgives us. When people don't affirm us, God can affirm us. When people are a source of hurt in our life, he's always the source of healing. If you feel this way with your family today, the prophetic word is this, God's gonna heal you. You feel like you've been thrown into a pit, but God's getting you out of that pit. Amen. I prophesy that over you today in Jesus' name. There's another person, you are working through a life change decision. And I felt that you were wrestling. You came here today and you were wrestling with a decision that you needed to make. I would use the word transition. It's a big change for you. It's a very big change for you. And you're wrestling and you just don't have peace at all. You feel like it just, the wrestle is too much. I just speak the peace of the Lord over you right now. What you do need is not every, you don't need every detail mapped out. We would all love that, amen. But I believe the Lord will give you peace. He'll give you the kind of peace that settles you. You can sleep well, you can walk with him, you can hear his voice and you can make the decision that is clear. You're not responsible for what is unclear. We are responsible for what is clear. And don't be confused about that. Let the peace of God speak to your heart. And the last thing is somebody had some knee pain. I had a vision uh, where I literally laid my hand on your knee. Now, if you're a lady, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> it's mildly inappropriate, but um, I had a vision where I laid my hands on someone's knee, like your, your knee, There's a lot of pain there. Something's wrong with your knee. And so we wanna pray healing for that. So Father, thank you for healing. If there's anybody in the room, you have, there's something wrong with your knee, just raise your hand right now. There's too many of you. Oh my gosh. All right. Father, thank you. Right now, in the name of Jesus, we pray for healing power over them. 
in their knee, whatever it is, their, their knee, their legs. Father, we ask you to heal that. I saw a vision, so we just believe that you heal what you reveal. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church. Thank you.